All right, we're rolling around to close to the end of season three. That's three seasons crazy. Of this. And I know you don't have Facebook anymore. What one of the things that I appreciate from Facebook is that they'll do the memories, uh-huh. uh, you know, and and the photos and like oh five years ago, whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. So three years ago, uh, shout out to uh, the Need to Know podcast. That's when oh, I went out right. there, and that was right before Triloquy had launched, and we had uh, the first uh, few interviews. I think we had them record. Oh yeah, because uh, I recorded some at Sphinx back right. in, in February of that year. So we had the the content recorded but we were still in development and you know how long is the thing gonna be and mm-hmm. so anyway it's 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 something to have those little moments where you look back on the road behind you you know an idea becoming something that people listen to something that has you know gotten me fired from a job i mean it's it's, it's lots it's, of it's, it's been a lot of things <laughs> you know speaking of length scott everybody's podcast <laughs> was three hours last week talking about uh you know the oscars what happened there and everything we were a few i try to keep us right under two hours uh we we did we went a little over but we didn't go that far over yeah did you do you uh take in any other content any other uh podcasts or anything that that we're uh talking about it we're we're engaging you know maybe shifted your opinions or perspectives a little bit no i did read um daniel radcliffe's quote like don't ask me. I'm mm-hmm. not. T- I'm not weighing in. I'm raising my hand and going that mm-hmm. that I. Nobody needs to hear my opinion on this anymore. Yeah, I uh, appreciated hearing Joe Button's comments on it. But basically, in a nutshell, he was talking about empathy and how he is empathetic to all parties involved. You know, of course, empathetic to Chris Rock, but showing empathy for Will Smith. We all, I think we even talked about this last week. We all have a a breaking point. We all have a a line in the sand that once it's crossed, we kind of go different and we do something else. So that, I guess that's, you know, just to put a final pin on that, Mm -hmm. uh, that, that, that's the, the energy that I'm, I'm bringing to the whole thing. Just, uh, empathy for, for all parties involved. Uh, I'll speak to, you know, some of the challenges that are happening on, on my end that make me want to get violent. Sometimes I'll do that in the triloquy, but, um, just feeling lots of empathy and glad that, uh, the award show that happened last night was without a hitch or or anything or a dramatic, <laughs> right? Without a, without a hit. So, um, we're, we're going to spend most of the first movement today, virtually all of the first movement, talking about the Grammys. But before we get into that, Scott, I wanted to offer a downbeat uh, to the late Virgil Abloh. So, uh, Virgil, among many, was honored in the in memoriam. Uh, portions of the award shows as those happen on all the award shows. You mm-hmm. know, uh, Virgil was uh, one of the many folks who uh, was honored there. For folks who don't know who Virgil is, I'm just going to read a little bit uh, from his bio here. It says he was an American fashion designer and entrepreneur, the artistic director at Louis Vuitton. Um, he was a chief executive offer of uh, Off-White, which is a Milan-based uh, fashion label, and did all sorts of other stuff around the world. So I was listening to uh, some of his uh, commentary, some of his speeches and panels uh, today, uh, you know, thinking about uh, the late Virgil. And I found this clip uh, really interesting. Let's take a listen here. I muse reality. That's why that's the one part of streetwear that I embrace is that my ideas come from real people. They come from, you know, like me and like I was shopping at a mall to learn fashion. Like my fashion school was literally going into Marc Jacobs. Like, I learned so much by seeing those fabrics and seeing those designs in real. And that gave me the perspective of what I use 
every day in my studio to create. So I love local stories. I love meeting real people. I get inspired by the most sort of mundane things. So I'm really drawn by that because being inspired by the world, drawing creativity from, as he said, just mundane things. It's, I feel like it's the stuff that I do all the time and every mm-hmm. day, especially when it comes to uh, radio production and writing those breaks and things. I mean, surely you're on a walk and you see a, a chicken cross the road and you'll have a break for the radio, right? I mean, can you speak to just the everyday being a part of the your creative process. As right. A, as know. a matter of fact, I did a whole break about this with Jesse Montgomery's Coincident Dances mm-hmm. because she talks about going on a walk and being inspired just by the sounds around her, which is basically what's happening there. When anybody who is doing any sort of content creation, poetry, painting, you know, whatever, they're absorbing what's going on around them. But for me, most recently, it's been over at Lake Phelan as it starts to ice out. Yeah, melt and stuff. It makes all sorts of like laser beam sounds, these patoo. Mm. And then chunk and and like bending and popping sounds. Mm-hmm. So the lake is very musical right now. And every day, every day, Radar and I get a different sort of remix of spring thaw. You got to bring some sort of mini mic out there. I do. Something. I try it with my phone. And every time I hit record, it goes quiet. And so I hold it and then my hand gets cold. I turn it off and it starts thumping again. A watched pot never boils. I'm is telling that what you. they say? Yep. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I'm I'm drawn by that because uh the conversations that happen here on Triloquy really lay the framework for so much of the other work that I do, the things that I learn from guests or the the yarns I pull, you know, sitting here with you. It it, it makes direct application to some of the outside stuff and um it it, it just really chokes me up to, th- to think about uh, the creative genius that we had, not in music and in, uh, in fashion, who the world lost all too quickly, and for him to be honored in the way that he was at the Grammy. So uh, I don't know if you noticed it on Twitter. I certainly did. Uh, there was a lot of uh, anger surrounding the subtext under his name. So when he appeared on the screen, he was listed there as a hip hop fashion designer. Now, I just read some of the folks that, you know, he was collaborating with, working with, in charge of, you know, and not that a hip-hop fashion artist is a uh, diminutive or anything because, you know, black is beautiful, black is everything, you know, but it's not all that he did. And Mm -hmm. it, you know, folks just couldn't help but to, if, uh, if not see racism in that, at least see arrogance in just stuffing this black man into the hip-hop fashion category when yes he impacted hip-hop fashion of course he he uh uh styled uh drake and kanye and all those folks but there's so much more think about my perspective i have no idea who he is Mm -hmm. and with that label that sets up all sorts of preconceived notions doesn't it like oh his work probably wouldn't have had an impact on me or i I probably wouldn't have never have seen one of his sweaters or that he was no what i'm saying is like limited to one little sliver of what he actually did sure you know the the other thing it reminds me of i joke about it all the time but uh jay-z said it a lot of rappers have said I'm not a rapper mm-hmm. because what they do is just too broad for you to, you know, put them in that little box. Mm-hmm. I find myself thinking about that a lot and having to engage that question a lot. The more work that I'm doing away from Triloquy, 
you know, folks ask me what what should go in your byline or whatever. And I can talk about myself as a musician. I can talk about myself as a, a radio producer, as a as a podcaster, as an activist, mm-hmm. you know, as a writer. I've been, you know, doing work over at Represent Classical. So it's hard to just pick that box. And uh, I don't know. I, I think uh, as we talk about the Grammys today, getting rid of some of those barriers, some of those cells, you know, just those little parameters we tie around ourselves may lead the way for us to take the mundane, as Virgil was speaking to, and think more creatively, not limit ourselves to, uh, as you were talking about, you know, with the the lake making noise, not limiting yourself necessarily to being inspired by what you hear for a radio break, but maybe those lake noises inspire you to do something on a guitar when you get home or, you know, but I, 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 I just feel like our, yeah. our job titles that we put on ourselves and that other people put on us in their own way, they could be limiting. When uh, you have to, you know, uh, present your name to somewhere or whatever, it's Scott Blakenship, comma what? What is what is what do you usually suggest or what national host and producer? So, but you're so much more than a national host and producer. I was telling someone that just recently that you know there's always something going on. You turn the microphone off and you don't sit there and twiddle your thumbs and watch the counter go down. Right. There's plenty of things to be done. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, uh, again, I I consider folks who work in radio writers to a degree because Mm -hmm. you have to be that even if you aren't writing things down, you're coming up with content, Um, you know, just being the nice guy or the mean guy, you know, a personality, as it were, that's a skill in itself. So, you know, as we move forward and and remember those uh, who who we've lost and those who we want to honor, let's not put them in those little boxes because that doesn't actually actually speak to who they are as a person. Um, you know, but getting back to the, you know, as we get started here, getting back to the main point he was making, just being fed by the people and just the mundane uh the world. It just it makes me think of the debt of gratitude that we all should have for each other. In my Buddhist practice, I'm always thinking about how to honor every single living being as uh someone who has something to contribute to the world. And I and I can't help but to think about that when mm. I think about Virgil's words, the fact that we all in being ourselves and and living our absolute truths uh not only just supply to the world for the sake of living but uh for the sake of artists who create and are inspired by those everyday things and decide to create a poem or a song or a a piece of clothing or something inspired by Hmm. one another so i think uh I think that's the positive note I'll start with because, again, like I said, we have to talk about the Grammys and it's not always so nice. So we'll go ahead and, and jump in. Triloquy Opus 145. Thank you so much for tuning in. To returning listeners, thank you for your continued support and for making sure Triloquy is a podcast and a project that is a part of not only your lives, the the mundane 
aspects of your life as you ride the bus or drive to work or or clean, you know, the house, whatever you're doing when you're listening to this, but making sure that it's a project that is actually impactful and consequential in the arts ecosystem at large to new listeners. Scott, let me put you on the spot. What do you have to say to the new listeners? What is Triloquy? Triloquy is unlike the other podcasts that you've heard because you hear a point A. You hear <laughs> no. This is this is about real talk, and yeah. it's about um, things that aren't always comfortable. You and I even have sparks that fly between us sometimes when we really get going on uh, topics where we have differing opinions, mm-hmm. um, and then we wrap it all in the mythos, the the universe of classical music and the arts. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to use that word intersectionality <laughs> that everybody loves. Of course, with the bigger point being that phrase classical music is one that can be applied to so much more. And when we apply that phrase to more, we can put the art form in proximity to more, to more conversations, to more people, to more communities. To learn more about the Triloquy podcast and to learn how you can contribute to Triloquy, please visit Triloquy.org. In addition to your support, Triloquy is made possible in part by the Springboard for the Arts, a local arts institution here in St. Paul, working to make a way for all artists to make a living and a life. More on them at springboardforthearts.org. I want to send a special thank you of of support uh, to the Lakes Area Music Festival. They have an upcoming concert of music curated by yours truly, Scott, on nice. uh, April 7th uh, in uh, in Minneapolis at the Women's Club and uh, on April 10th up at Brainerd, up in uh, Brainerd, Minnesota, if you want to travel up there. So uh, I'll have a link in the description for more information. Just visit lakesareamusic.org. And then finally, Scott, I have to send a shout out and a thank you to KVNO for their continued support. Uh, the Sound of 13.2 has officially been commissioned. I, I put my John Hancock on the dotted line. So so oh boy. That means I got some work to do in here. <laughs> <laughs> For change, right? Right, yeah. Uh, so huge shout out to uh, KV and O Scott. You know, uh, you're one of your former radio stations really uh, putting their neck out there. I, I have to say, I'm, it's not like I'm cussing or just doing anything crazy when I uh, produce content for KV and O that goes on to be distributed nationally. But I have to say, I feel like they're they're sticking themselves out there a little bit uh, by entrusting someone like me <laughs> with a with a project that takes Western classical music and puts that in proximity to conversations of race and class. So I really appreciate you know having having them as a partner and someone who I I know is is in it for real. This is their fiftieth anniversary year. I recently recorded a, an interview for, I guess they're putting together a birthday package or something like that, and I guess it'll be included there. But um, Sherry Brownrigg, the program director, told me a story about how at one point KVNO almost went away hmm. due to funding, you know, um, <clears throat> I guess it was the the funding that they were getting from the university was in jeopardy, et cetera, et cetera. And you think, you know, public radio has always faced that. Yeah. But- this was like really last person out, turn out the lights mm-hmm. sort of a situation, but it's coming back and doing things like this, which I think is a testament to the listenership, you know, so maybe we need to give a little bit more bail to the people who are tuning in. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And then not long ago, we were talking about WDAV over in the uh, Charlotte right. area right. who, you know, Chapel Hill. topped the charts, you know, uh, with content, yes, some of which produced by me, but I think the the bigger point is that they're reaching outside of those pre 
uh, uh, prefixed boxes mm-hmm. as far as what classical radio, what public radio is. Again, in the downbeat, we were talking about Virgil, you know, and, and being put in a box and being inspired by all things. I think we're beginning to see that uh, in public radio across the country, of classical stations just willing to engage what's around and understanding that not all of the listeners are going to go with you, mm-hmm. and that's okay. Mm-hmm. But there, there are are things of benefit on the other side of those challenges. WDAV saw it, KVNO saw it. You know, with uh, Sound of Thirteen season one and all of the other uh, great things they're doing. So, a uh, special shout out to them, to everyone in Radio Land, to everyone in Podcast Land. We have Perry and. Charlotte in the third movement this week from thrilled to announce. So it's a whole week of, of things uh, talking about production and, and opinion and all of those things. So we'll go ahead and get into it. This is movement one. I knew you were going to come over here and say that you didn't see the Grammys. So I made <laughs> uh, sure that we know? made that happen. <laughs> hey, look, I, I'm, I'm in an online class. The first Three, uh, the first three-month course wrapped up on Sunday. The next one started today. And the syllabus said, we hope you don't have too many plans for the next 12 weeks. <laughs> That's because what it said on the yeah, paperwork. <laughs> because you're going to be you're going to be doing projects for Pro Tools 110. And so I guess that's what I'm going to be doing here until June. Oh, well. So talk about production for three months. Good, good, good luck. But that, 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 that's good stuff to learn, Pro Tools and that's what that. I was. That's what I was, I was doing my final project when the Grammys were on. Mm. So I can't listen to the Grammys and edit audio at the same time. Yeah, I hear you. I hear that. But, you know, you've, you've seen it now. So we're just right. going to go through. I, I picked a few things for uh, us to talk about, just some quick hits. Maybe we won't even uh, be here all that long this week, but we'll go ahead and uh, jump in. Well, for, for, for the first thing I'll ask you, Scott, what do you think? What did you think about the production? Because, of course, you know, the Grammys can win uh, an Emmy, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if you think about it that way, as, a, as just a production. The the awards themselves are one thing. We'll, we, we'll get into that in a bit. But as far as the, the television show, well, how, how, how do you think it, how do you think it went? Well, it's got sort of that they're married to a formula or they're tied to a formula, mm. though. I mean, how much can they do? They went, they did some outside shots. You know, who were the bands that were playing on top of the parking garage? Yeah, I think, know, they, is, uh, is picked, that, I think they picked some of the uh, awardees who don't make it to the, uh, the main event and say, well, well, we'll, we'll let you play for well, us as, you know, as the commercial break You can play in going. the garage. <laughs> well, <laughs> look, y'all acted like, oh, by the way, when we were talking, the emails were interesting the week we were talking about the Super Bowl and I, I was talking about lift every voice in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. Folks thought I was really reaching. I'm, I'm sorry, but we need to put the Negro national anthem inside of the arena as well. That's, that's significant. You're saying, but anyway, they get to, they get to play on the roof though. Right. They're (laughs) they're there. (laughs) So basically you're, you're watching a a multi-artist concert. Right. And and that's and, what Trevor Noah said at the top. He like just considered this a, a concert where we're giving out some awards in between. But I always appreciate I appreciated the live performances over the lip sync. No shade to the people that lip sync, but there well, was a certain energy about the live stuff that speaking, I speaking speaking of lip sync. Let's go to <laughs> oh, is that a, the lead in that you needed? <laughs> no. Uh, well, first and foremost, okay. So uh, like I said, just some some quick hits throughout. Lil Nas X. Mm-hmm. We've talked about him a few times here on Triloquy. I can't help but to think when I watch Lil Nas X, this black 
gay man, you know, not to say that we haven't had queer people in the pop music limelight before, the so-called pop music limelight before, but this black gay man doing his thing on stage unapologetically so and not just a hint or a reference of certain things, but really affirming out loud all of the queer Gen Z people, you know. My young mind, my 35-year-old mind wants to say, wow, we have never seen anything like this. Hmm. But but correct me, correct me. Like when, when, when we think about artists who have just completely just shattered certain levels of respectability, uh, the status quo when it comes to what artists, specifically what male artists should do mm-hmm. or sound like or represent on stage. Right. I'm you're sure ta- there's some folks. You're you know. talking about... Little Nas is is checking more of the boxes, Mm -hmm. definitely. But it makes me think about Elton John, who is very flamboyant on uh, on stage. Uh, David Bowie, Mm. you know, um, who you know blurred the lines between gender, you know, when in the seventies, right? His androgyny bit, right? Um, Did that have did did that matter when it came to uh, fandom of the music? There's always going to be someone who says, oh, I'm not going to listen to music by that such and such. But overall, do you feel like I think it really spoke to the people. I think it spoke to the people who felt strange, who felt like they were outsiders, who felt like Mm. they didn't quite fit in because they wanted to wear makeup or or wear clothes that wasn't for their gender, you know, whatever it is. Um, And the other, uh, what about Liberace? I mean, you know, he was about his flan. He would climb out of his limo with the blinking pants and live ocelot on his head. And and a lot of these fashions that Lil Nas X has on are, is very much that, you you know? know? (laughs) So, um, but uh, I know what you're getting to and Lil Nas is just checking more of the boxes once you get into, you know, queer black man yeah you know yeah because all these other guys that all these other people i'm mentioning were white i'm so i'm you know i'm 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 just so proud i'm mm. i'm i'm glad to uh see that younger queer generations have a hero you know mm. they 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 can they they have someone to look up to and again like i said not someone who's hinting at queerness or oh we all know behind the scenes you know but someone who is actually out front mm-hmm. um what do you think about uh little Nas X having his um his own ally slash accomplice in Jack Harlow. I, I put on uh, Instagram, I'm going to tell, I'm gonna tell my kids that that was me and Scott. When they're like, what? So what kind of work did y'all do? I'll say, well, I was kind of like a little Nas X and, <laughs> and Scott was Jack Harlow. <laughs> I have to listen to some do, of this guy's think, music. Do you, think it, do you think it matters at this point for Lil Nas X to have the white, straight, man, male, you know, uh, doing doing the songs with him does does that give him extra points or entry into certain spaces or is he the you know accoutrement at this point it's the the wider audience mm-hmm. yeah and of Maybe course we know when we use that phrase we know what we really mean i, I know that's why i was that's why i was emphasizing the d yeah right because we made that distinction a couple times on the pod yeah yeah, yeah. um maybe but doesn't association isn't that going to at least for the time being get the, both of them a little bit more recognition from the other other artists camp sure and considering the fact that Lil Nas X had the most commercially successful song of all time mm. you know in in uh in Old Town Road right I don't know. I feel like Jack Harlow was riding the the coattail a little bit more than than anything. But I, I'll oh, the, I wasn't saying I'll that. let the Gen Z people argue about that. But I just yeah. think it's cute that he has someone there by his side. I, I don't know who Jack Harlow is. So <laughs> he's. I don't know. know this man. I, I need to put I, that on the board. 
<laughs> he could be walking down the street and I would know a thing. Um, so it wasn't just Lil Nas, Lil Nas X who performed. We had a performance by Big Nas mm -hmm. as well. Nas, of course, who for the past several years has been performing uh, specifically with orchestras. And I was glad uh, at the Grammys to see most, I think, I want to say all, Lil, Lil Nas X, they had a drum line or something, but most of the performers had an orchestra of sorts on stage, you know, as uh, as did Nas. Mm -hmm. And um, I was talking to you uh, earlier as we were watching about the idea of certain communities not being able to really give him the flowers that he deserves, considering the age of hip hop as a genre, how many of those years Nas has been in them as a front runner for most of the years of hip hop. It seems like all of that must be lost on on so many. Right, audiences. but you know, this was a it was news to me. I didn't know that he was still recording all this time. Yeah, we. Uh, on I feel like on this season of Triloquy, we uh, I brought in a, a, a tune that featured Lauren Hill, and, and maybe I, I focused in on her verse. But you know he's mm -hmm. he's put out an album uh, since then, right? Even yeah. Um, are there many artists in your periphery that you have been with for that long? Artists who have grown not only with the development of whatever genre they're in, but with their audience base. Is is there an artist who's been recording? for over 30 years that you've been hanging out with for that long? Rolling Stones. Oh, and they're still going. They're still doing it. They're still, oh, I had they're no still idea. on tour. Yeah. Shout out to the late Charlie Watts who uh, died last year, the drummer for the entire time, I believe. Mm -hmm. And he was a jazz man. Oh, really? Right. He, that's that's why the Stones had the, had the vibe that they had. Charlie Watts was the heart of it. Yeah. So we have these artists who have uh, just are the Mount Rushmore figures, uh, so to speak, mm. of of their respective oh, genres. What about Common though? Sure, com yeah. I'm, I get, but you know, of course, Nas has been out way longer than Common. Maybe not way longer, but for a much longer amount of time. You but know? you're talking about evolution, though. That sure. His most recent, you you described it as hip hop for adults, or and and that's that's what I'm getting at. There are so many of these artists who, if you're in in that club, you know, if if you if you spend time inside of that music, you understand how significant it is that they have grown with their audience and been here uh, this whole time. Uh, you know, time this with the arts as as we try to do. How I wonder. It just seems like there are things we can take from describing one of these monumental artists to an audience who may not know and just getting the the uh the 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 significance of their output understood by those folks mm. there have to be things that we can do to help bridge folks more into these art spaces that we're always talking about and i'm not talking about making someone understand how significant beethoven was but getting them to understand i guess something to get them involved yeah i uh, think the first thing that you that one could you all right Never mind. The way that I would do it mm -hmm. is I would try to frame it as this is nothing new. Every time we had a shift in the music, people were saying these things. Mm -hmm. And so right now we're seeing a we're seeing a huge shift. Um shout out to uh uh Orlando um Orlando Garcia, right? He was recently interviewed in, uh, I care if you listen, but I used to interview him a lot when I was uh, down at Classical South Florida. And he recently had a piece of music premiere that was for electronics and saxophone. Mm. See, and so 
there, there's all sorts of meldings and, um, you know, um, uh, confluences coming together, creating yeah. these new versions of sound that I think uh, we're just seeing a shift. Yeah. And, and, and now, now my thoughts are kind of, you know, meshing uh, a little better, you know, making more sense in my mind. I guess really what I'm getting at is when I think about the evolution of someone like Nas and just surviving and remaining relevant uh, all that time. Oh, and I'm talking about an orchestra. Well, no, well, well, you know, tying it with uh, the Western classical, just helping folks understand that your idea of what classical is isn't wrong but there has been so much more of an evolution sure. since the days of baccarini's right. minuet you know the beethoven five so that's what i'm talking about right. helping folks understand the the uh the significance of the evolution and the growth of the art form and the concept i'm sure that orlando can play beethoven sure so yeah you know so this is and he's building you know we're, we're all standing on the shoulders of the giants that came before to a degree. Yeah. So when you still have the giants here, yeah. you know, like you have in a Nas, that's something yeah. very significant. So shout out and uh, congratulations to Nas. We're going to um, listen to a little bit of a uh, Lady Gaga performance to uh, split some of this up. But uh, just to, you know, tell folks what's coming up. This is a bit of a performance of a the commercial recording of a tune of hers called Do I Love You. It was performed live uh, at the Grammys. Uh, uh, in honor of uh, Tony Bennett. And we're going to talk about this a little bit, but just to, you know, uh, give folks a break from our voices. Here's the beautiful voice of Lady Gaga, a little bit of Do I Love You, as performed on her recent album. After that sweet summer afternoon, when for the first time I saw you appear. Dreaming of you, I composed a tune So will you listen to it, performance of the Grammys had more of the orchestral in- instruments, but I, mm-hmm. I really like that guitar accompanying His Lady Gaga. Nice hollow body. Yep. I already gave it up for Lady Gaga a couple weeks ago, so everybody here knows how I feel, but I guess what I want to talk about when it comes to that performance, when we talk about reframing our idea of classical music, especially in an American context, we're most certainly hearing American classical music in that music, in that in that style, in in that approach, um, did the pop stuff that most folks know Lady Gaga for? Uh, I don't know. Do do you do you think that was just a peripheral thing that she wanted to do for right. a while, or is this what it could have been the whole time? But maybe it wasn't so marketable. I'm sure we kind of talked about this last right. time, but it just, it you always, that conversation always comes up when been, we hear Lady Gaga in this context. I've been thinking about that since you brought it up earlier this evening, because I wonder if she would have came out with something like this, the Tony Bennett stuff first. Yeah. She probably would have been relegated down this, you know, songbook path. Sure. You sure. know, and maybe she wouldn't have sold as many records. Maybe she wouldn't have the legions of fans i don't know but going the route that she went pop first she's got the money now to record whatever she wants right and i think you're making a good point she got 
us listening right, right. first. You know, she got us dancing in the club and and, and then doing, showed and doing all that, and then she, and and said, "Okay, I also do this, and we're here for it." So. I feel like, again, there's something mm. to be learned there when it comes to engaging more audiences in our performance spaces and in our in our arts advocacy and all of that stuff. Lady Gaga met us where we were mm-hmm. and then years later said, OK, but I can I can also do this. I think that is that is a, a really great example of how we get folks involved and, uh, and and engaged by these art forms. Let's pretend that instead of singing uh, music uh, with Tony ben- Bennett in, in that classic jazz style, mm-hmm. she brought out a violin, you yeah. know, 10 years into her career. We would have been here for it, you know, or, or whatever it, it was. So I just think that there's there's something to learn there. And a uh, shout out once again to Lady Gaga for, for being the blueprint on how to get us listening to, to hard that to see tony bennett like that too on that video introduction that he did yeah oh man yeah i mean we we all grow old and well let me let me mm. say that we don't all grow old we all we don't all get to get to tony bennett's age so. he's had a hell of a career yeah, yeah yeah absolutely and then before we get to uh some of the western classical things i wanted to offer a shout out to doja cat and you know, Doja Cat has been through a lot of heat, a lot of Facebook canceling, and even was so frustrated not too long ago, put on her Instagram or her Twitter one that she was retiring from music because she had to cancel the show uh, overseas for, you know, I think it was a COVID related something. And, you know, her fans were just uh, just going to town on social media mm-hmm. as the internet tends to do. But, you know, moments like hers winning for uh, R&B duo where you could really see the emotion in in her spirit of having made it here to the Grammy stage and there are people who I don't know who are affirming my music as among the best. I could it would be very easy for me to completely dismiss the show and the awards, but to see young artists like Doja Cat who, you know, most of the time they're being silly, uh non-serious or, mm-hmm. or whatever, to see those moments of the real person. I, I, I have to honor that. So, you know, one of the many reasons why I can't completely throw this away, despite some of the decisions that mm-hmm. I very much disagree with that we're going to get into uh, after we revisit Doja Cat's breakout single, the one that most of us uh, heard uh, first of hers, a track titled yeah. Move. Bitch, I'm a cow. Bitch, I'm a cow. I'm not a cat. I don't say now, bitch. I'm a cow, bitch. I'm a cow, bitch. I'm a cow, bitch. I'm a cow. I go move. I'm a cow, 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 I'm a uh, this song, what, what I had heard, basically at the very beginning of her career, Doja Cat's people were like, look, you need to sing about something that's going to get people actually caring about you know, the message. And I know how you are, Scott, about lyrics and all of those things. And Doja Cat was basically like, listen, these folks just want to dance. They want to have a good time. They want to have a space where they're not taking anything too seriously. I'm going to put out this song called Moo and it's going to go great. And the music video is hilariously, beautifully amateur, you know, just very much green screen (laughs) and whatever costume she could find. And 
right now, I'm looking at it now, it has over 100 million views. You know, how many of these arts institutions can never get 1 million views on a, on a, <laughs> on a video, much less 100 million? And she's talking about how she's not a cow. So anyway, to see that sort of opening to you know her her career at least uh, as many of us knew it all the way to the Grammy stage you know seeing some of those emotions I saw all of the tossed and turned sleepless nights I saw all of the times she had to fix the iPhone camera because it wasn't right or you know I I I think it's great and there's some really cool guitar on there I don't know if you heard it but <laughs> I did I've heard this song twice just now and when you auditioned it sure. about an hour ago sure um <laughs> what. <laughs> I don't I don't know Doja Cat's music. Right. So right. for me, I mean, yes, it's great to see her have uh, an emotional response to winning I mean, the we award. Have, we have but let Weird me, Al have a whole career, you know, doing this. So let her have her moment. <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm not taking anything away from her. Yeah. I'm just I'm just saying that I didn't have a connection to her music, so her acceptance didn't land as hard for me as it did for you. Sure, sure. And and again, going back to um, helping other people understand the impact, understand what happened. You know, when we sure. say, "Oh, see, the kids don't even know what don't happened." Don't even know. You know, some of the you know some of the adults. Some like of the adults have no know. idea <laughs> <laughs> that she had to sing about not being a cow to get here. So yeah. <laughs> anyway, if you don't know that, I'll, I'll make I'll make uh, one of the stills from that video, the the triloquy image for this week, because I don't know. I, I shout out the people and honor the people who don't take themselves too seriously and still manage to you know, gain some notoriety and some, some, some success. I think it's mm. uh, worth something. All right. Well, uh, we're, that was, I didn't press any of the accidental. So I guess that was more of the sharp section of the Grammys, you know, some of the things I'm celebrating. So now I got to get into some of my disagreements. So let's go ahead and get started with um, some of these Western classical categories. I want to speak to best chamber music slash small ensemble performance. We had percussion ensembles nominated. Uh, the Imani Wins Bruits album was there. And Imani Wins, I'm friends with them on Facebook. They looked incredible at the Grammys. But who did the award go to? But oh, yes, another recording of a Beethoven something what are your thoughts i'm sure they found new pages <laughs> they found a they, new way to play the mordant this, and measure 137 there, or you there, know um, actually that was a mezzo piano and, and it's always been played as a forte so this recording is you know like what what, what are we supposed to do like i don't know what, what, what you you're go, you're gonna have to talk about this recording at some point you know if, if not this week at work at some point the Best Chamber Music Performance Grammy from 2022 will make it on your playlist. I'm sure you're going to have just the most exciting thing to I talk about. I can say that and then press play. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would like to actually see some of, the, uh, some of the classical people actually get their award and get to say something. It, it kind I of, would like to see some of the... Some of the stuff that isn't the, the K-pop, it it bring right uh, it br it brings us you know to an article that you'll you brought in. We'll we'll take a, a little detour away specifically from the Grammys uh, from Yes Magazine. Uh, who gets to define classical music? All of this, of course, uh, centers some of the uh, the nominations that were made in the classical categories. This article in particular uh, with Curtis Stewart, who. Um, 
was nominated for a Grammy and you have folks upset about it because they were like, oh, well, this isn't really classical. So on mm -hmm. one end, we have Beethoven literally, you know, being maintained on this ivory tower, at least within the Grammy institutions. And even when folks can get in that are offering something different, you have the pushback. So it seems like a, 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 you're fighting uphill, but multiple armies you're fighting uphill. Right. Um this also speaks to uh, articles that we've brought up in past opuses, including um, John McWhorter. His article in the New York Times was featured here where he was saying, you know, Batiste's release does not deserve to be put right. in the classical um, right. sphere. But actually, we have uh, someone from the classical world writing in to the Academy, Mark Nykrug. You might recognize that name. Right. Uh, Grammy-nominated composer said in his letter to the Academy, as a serious, dedicated composer of what has always been considered classical music, I am dismayed. Nykrug found it unfathomable that the Academy, quote, would choose to recategorize an entire segment of our inherited culture. Mm -hmm. So those words I've got problems with, you know, that, that whole inherited culture vibe that feels straight that feels weird to me but uh stewart makes a great comment down here underneath uh, the video clip that's referenced here uh the part that nykrug's critique that stewart finds most hurtful is the idea that music does not fit the composer's definition of quote our inherited culture mm -hmm. there's that othering again uh, Stewart is a child of two professional musicians. He says, I've literally inherited the music of my mother and father. I am a classical musician. There's another spot in this article that says here, another critic, Apostolos Parasquivas, a professor at Berkeley College of Music, uh, complained to the observer saying, if this person, he's talking about Batiste here, he says, if this person gets an award, this is a big slap on our face. It's mm -hmm. a message to everyone that we should give up and just do this. See the arrogance in that, because first of all, who says you can't do that? And that's my thing. The Curtis Stewart's, the John Batiste, they can play these Beethoven sonatas. They can play all of this nonsense. What you can't do is dig into your creativity and bring something to the field like what they're bringing to the field. Right. You know, it uh, it it's a testament. Again, like I said, it's like you know we're we're fighting multiple armies uphill, but. If we can really take that phrase, classical music, that's why I just I frame all of this work on this podcast around that concept. If we can take that phrase, classical music, and just break it down to the point to where we can apply it to more, we're going to have more to enjoy and more to select from. And that if, if that means the Beethoven just isn't seasoned enough or isn't engaging enough within those classical categories to compete on this level, that means everyone's creativity needs to uh, need to go as they say in hip hop. You need to step your dick up. Is what you know. Oh. Is what they would say. So you know, I I, I just hope that folks like uh, Curtis Stewart, you know, John Batiste, who doesn't need you know our little congratulations after everything he achieved at the Grammys. But you know, everyone, Jennifer Coe, Caroline Shaw, all these folks doing your own thing within this framework of so called classical music. Keep doing that. Um, and you know, I, I consider this Beethoven win in the chamber music category a loss for the culture. I, I will go as far as to say that again, no shade to Yo-Yo uh, uh, Ma and his uh, uh, collaborative uh, musician who was it, Emmanuel, Emmanuel Axe. Axe. Uh, but I've been playing them 31 years. That's, that's what I'm saying. 
That's what I'm saying. So, you know, let's let's continue uh, to push forward. I'll have this article uh, in the uh, description for y'all to look at and you can send whoever you want to a mean email. But uh, to <laughs> to, uh, to get us to the final portion of our first movement in our little Grammy breakdown here, I want to uh, listen to a little bit of Curtis Stewart. He performed last night at the Grammys variations, solo variations on a classic tune. Isn't she lovely? Let's take a listen to a little bit of what he had to offer. Aside from the fact that we should be honoring the music of Stevie Wonder next to the Beethovens and all of those things as equally genius, you know, the 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 technique that any Western classical school of music person would need to know is displayed in performances like that. We even aired some of the music from uh, Curtis Stewart's uh, nominated album on Triloquy, you know, probably about a month ago or whatever, when this conversation was first happening. What mm-hmm. do we call classical and X, Y and Z? A lot of the music was just that, you know, songs that we know or or, or famous melodies uh, played on in the way that he was doing with that uh, with that Stevie Wonder there. You know, you can't look, Scott. I mean, it, it's hard for me. I, I hear people who say you can't reduce everything to just calling it racist. I get that. But it's hard for me to understand how else I should look at it when you consider everything that's there. You have all of the classical technique. It's a violin, for fuck's sake. It's not like he's sitting there on this invented instrument that no no one knows. Um, you know, has parents who uh, went to music school, mm-hmm. uh, went to prestigious music schools himself. I mean, how 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 else am I supposed to swallow a rejection of that sort of music in a classical category other than folks yeah. just being racist. Right. I see what you're coming from. And, you know, my point is how can, how can someone like that not take the music someplace else? Right. How can they not take other influences and combine them? I, I think it seems only natural to me. Mm, 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 mm. Anyway, um, continued uh, support to uh, Curtis Stewart and and everyone over there at Public Quartet. You know, he's a, right. he's a part of that group. And, right. you know, again, shout out to Janina. She came and saw who she's in Public Quartet. She came and saw me in Washington, D.C. the other week. You know, I was I heard I first heard them perform at uh, a Sphinx conference I don't know, maybe back in 2014, 2015 years ago, there's too much incredible stuff happening in this uh, so-called classical music sphere for Beethoven cello sonatas to be winning anything. And I'll I'll, I'll just stand by that and and leave that there uh, for for everyone to think about. All right. um, So, you know, wrapping up this uh, first movement, you know, we're talking about the Grammys here. One point of the Grammys that was very sobering in more ways than one was uh, Zelensky's speech, his mm-hmm. words to everyone at the Grammys. I'm, I'm just going to read uh, a little bit of uh, what he said here. 
It says, our children draw swooping rockets, not shooting stars. Over 400 children have been injured and 153 children died. Our musicians wear body armors instead of tuxedos. They sing to the wounded in hospitals, even to those who can't hear them. But the music will break through anyway. We defend our freedom to live, to love, to sound. He goes on just to encourage us, his call to action um, was to not be silent, to use our platforms, everything we have to speak the truth and to uh, really let everyone know the violence that's going on over there in Ukraine. It it's, it's something for me, Scott, because the perspective that we don't have that I guess we need to think about is that there are people who have a an idea about what this war is that is incorrect or the mm-hmm. the product of some sort of Russian propaganda or anything. That's really dark Wag the dog. to think about, yeah. really, really dark to think about. How can a moment like this um, be contextualized in a celebration? You know, how do you listen to words like that and hear the beautiful performance by John Legend that followed yeah. and, and, st- and still be in that celebratory champagne and tuxedo mood? Indeed, how? I don't know. That's heavy. Um, it's, use the uh, the dead silence. Fill the silence with your music. Fill it today to tell our story. There's that's a plea. Yeah, yeah. He could have indicted everyone sitting there, and that's the other place my mind went after I heard Zelensky speaks. He didn't go up there and say, "All of you need to get off your ass and pick up arms and do something." We're out here dying while y'all are. Dying. He didn't do any of that, which he would have been. Right, would not have been wrong to do. I think but the subtext was there. I th- yeah. He didn't come out and say it, but he was saying it. So, I mean, <laughs> like I said, it's, it's, it's hard to uh, to even know what to say or, sure. or, or, or what, what to do. I think he used a lot of self-control. Again, I, I would have indicted mm. every all, all of those millionaires sitting there in their tuxedos, but he mm. decided to do that. So we have to continue to speak truth to power when it comes to what's going on, not only in Ukraine, but all over the world, specifically Africa and the Middle East, all of the refugees being uh, created there every single day, all the lives being lost. Have you, uh, as, as this news has continued to develop and be a part of our new normal, I wonder if you you've uh, discovered for yourself any new Ukrainian artists? Are, are there folks that you're airing at work uh, in in uh, conjunction with this news? What what's it what, what's it looking like? There on, are, but I can't recall that. the names now. Yeah, um, I think it's more noticeable the ones that aren't there to me. So the, what what has had to be taken away because yeah. of the news? So yeah. what the 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 who the Tchaikovsky's? Oh, Gergiev is the main and, one, and the Trebko gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that means that y'all were leaning on them enough or the industry at large was leaning on them enough for their absence to be noticeable. I would think that, you know, anybody who uh, listens a lot or works in a station would notice it. Mm, Sure. Mm. Well, uh, let's uh, get let me just make sure there's nothing else. I mean, there's several other things we can uh, speak to this this Jamaican group uh, Soja Mm -hmm. from Virginia beating out all of the actual Jamaicans in the reggae nominated category. Mm -hmm. I I hadn't heard anything about that. I read about it this morning on uh, on Triloquy on Twitter. any any thoughts? I mean, of course they have the right to be mad. N- none of the Jamaican artists won reggae uh, album of the year. Let Come me on. tell you all a story. Um, <laughs> Go ahead. Me and Dell and Garrett went up on the North Shore on a trip, and we went into this place called the Hungry Hippie. 
it was a cafe okay. that advertised that it had recently won the best ethnic food award in the city pages. You remember? <laughs> sure, sure. You had the um, chili the, mac the, or whatever. The, the was nacho ethnic chili as far mac. As they were concerned. <laughs> Listen, where's my? There we go. <sighs> How did that come up? What were we talking about? Oh, well, uh, the, maybe the, in the, Virginia, the reggae people went in. Uh, maybe in Virginia, there. Maybe they are, but I saw I saw a post that said uh, something like, "You have no." I'm not going to be able to find it in time. Uh, I found a post about, um, here it is. If majority of Jamaicans across the world are unaware of your existence, <laughs> you should not be winning a Grammy for the best reggae album. Sorry, not sorry. And so period. at NU underscore Tiffany has it. <laughs> that's, I think that's the right tag. Mm -mm. You, you put me on, as we rewatched, you drew my attention to uh, Chris Stapleton mm -hmm. and the type of music that he's putting out there. Chris Stapleton uh, won uh, one of the country awards presented last night at the Grammys. Well, you know, to, to all of us, myself included, who don't really know Chris Stapleton's music or, or what he has to offer, how would you describe it? He's a hell of a songwriter. And an incredible voice that um, it soars and it growls. And I hear a lot of the influence of artists that I listened to growing up. The Texas Blues. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of artists like Stevie Ray Vaughan. Um, you know, uh, probably early Clapton. Sure. You know, things like that. Um but also loads of American blues yeah. are in there too. The way that he wails, mm -hmm. it could be uh, Howlin' Wolf sure. could be an influence in there. Sure, sure. But um, let's go, He, it, it's the blue-eyed blues. Let's get into that a little bit after we listen to the beginning of this song of his called Cold. I think it's really incredible, but the Blue Eye Blues conversation is one we need to have. I hope I didn't go on too long there. Let's, let's take a listen to this. Girl, the way you broke my heart Shattered like a rock through the window Thought we had a soldier I never really saw this coming Oh, why you got to be so cold? Why you got to go and cut me like a knife? Put our love on I don't not hear black music gospel. when I when I listen to that. It could be gospel. It could be much of the blues that I grew up with uh, growing up down south. And this isn't uh, a jab at Chris Stapleton. Um, for me, it, it just begs the... So you use the phrase blue-eyed blues, mm -hmm. you know, basically white folks who have taken over this, this black art form. For me, if the reverence and the respect and the knowledge of the history, you know, all of the things that made that genre of music possible. If that is being honored in the artist, I, I don't, I don't have a gripe. I would hope that an artist like Chris Stapleton is acknowledging that past, the roots of those music, because 
I can listen to that. I can sure. listen to that for a long time. Right. See, but um, for me, this this sounds. You know how I'll come in and bring something to you and say, "Well, this sounds like Beale Street on a Tuesday night." Yeah. You know, uh, to me, that sounds like um, uh, Doyle Bramhall, Los Lonely Boys, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yeah. Um, uh, Alejandro Escovedo. Sure. I can keep spinning off all the names. There's a, it has a sameness to it. Yeah. No yeah. disrespect, but. That's why I look at artists like Montero, and even though I, uh, not Montero, like uh, Lil Nas, yep. even though that's not for me, that's I'm not his demographic, mm -hmm. I look at it and go, he's moving the needle. Right. Chris Stapleton is in the zeitgeist. You know, he's 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 maintaining it in my, yeah. you know, and he's doing great at it. No disrespect at all. All I'm saying is, is that there's a sameness to it. Uh, I'm I'm not necessarily hearing the evolution there. Mm, that's very interesting. So when it comes to these, as you say, again, alleged blue-eyed blues, mm -hmm. what is your measure of a roots artist, blues artist, whatever, who is going along with uh, the, the evolution, really bringing something unique to the space while honoring the past? Do you, do you have something uh, specific that you well, look for? I can... A guitar technique, a voice thing? What is it? Um let me bring up Buffalo Nichols because uh, a couple months ago I brought in one of his um, uh, songs that I had recently gotten on vinyl. Um, he is he he's having a career right now. He's getting a, he's on tour, and he also did an interview with Rolling Stone where he came right out and he said the Eric but Clapton, but he's black, right? He? Yeah, but he came out and he said, you know, the Eric Clapton's, the Rolling Stones, you know, all the all these bands that you know are winning these awards and having all this money, they got it here. Mm. And the people who like the Blue Eyed Blues were unhappy. So he's he was facing that on mm. social media. Mm -mm. So there's an example of somebody, you know, Buffalo's coming out and saying, we did this. This is ours first. And it's making them and, mad. Well, and, it yeah. hurts. But but the thing about the thing about Buffalo Nichols though is he's playing in that traditional style, and I think that we do need to have the people who are stalwarts that way, the people who are uh, going to keep the flame, yeah, uh, of what the black tradition was, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think all of these people who are getting famous and making all this money by uh, incorporating that that flame as you say into into their music they have a responsibility as well don't make me come back up in here scott next week and read something about chris stable to be a racist oh because, please don't <laughs> because i'm gonna tear him up i promise i am but, I, no but i for like now, chris, yeah for now i love it i like chris Stapleton <laughs> a lot yeah that uh tennessee whiskey is a great track yeah they played the hell out of that back when i was down in knoxville but oh yeah you know that song that we just listened to you know that, that's really why i appreciate the blues it, it was a time of my life Life, I remember uh, right, but not maybe not long before I won my audition in Knoxville uh, back in 2013. I was listening to a lot of blues music because it just affirmed how uh, dumbfounded I was at some of the things in my life that seem so easy, but for the other folks involved was just some big complicated thing. And that mm. song, Chris Stapleton is singing, why you got to be so cold? Mm -hmm. You know, why, why, why are you like this? <laughs> and, I, and I know I'm projecting, I'm thinking about some, <laughs> some past situations, <laughs> but you know, that that is that is why blues is is just such an incredible thing. And when we talk about evolution and you know t telling the kids or even the adults, oh, you don't even know what happened. 
Think about what black folks had to go through for us to have that, to have right. that genre. Think about the blues that for real had the black and blues, like um, Louis Armstrong saying, yeah. you know, to for, for us to get here. So I can appreciate music like that. I don't always center the uh, the country and the blues and the roots and all of that stuff. But we, we, we have to honor that music as well in that American classical framework. And we need to hold folks' feet to the fire because... It's uh, it's it's easy for things to be attributed, uh, at least in their creation, to communities that did not create those things. I don't know. I think about all the people that have all of the cap all of the capability, all of the ability, um, but none of the access mm. to get there. Um, mm -hmm. There, there's people on, like you said, there's people on Beale Street who are playing that blues uh, every night of the week. Yeah. There's people playing folk music on the street corners who could step on stage and play right along with an orchestra. Women singing in churches every Sunday morning who could See, be anywhere. It, yeah, it makes me think about um, all of those people that just didn't have the the right access, the right platform. Yeah. Uh, what would it be like if the the Grammys were about the artists that we didn't see? I don't know. So if every, I mean, that's an interesting thought. If if every category really broke down new discoveries in each so-called genre, you know, so that we can put more folks on our radars to an extent. Mm. That's what the Grammys do, because I never know most of the artists or most of the songs. Same with the Oscars, all of these awards. I, I was patting myself, myself discovering. Yeah, you know? I was patting myself on the back. I knew Dua Lipa. Oh, did you? <laughs> I D G A F. That's a great song. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you're 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 making a a great point there. As we you know celebrate these uh, Grammy winners, we got to think about the conversation of access and and, and what that looks like. I, I, I'm going to spend some time thinking about what a renewed infrastructure could look like mm -hmm. because it's easy for us to throw away the Grammys, and I'm not you know arguing with anybody who wants to do that. I think we have to think about. What else, though? You know, mm -hmm. what? How, how can we honor the people that the Grammys don't honor? Anyway, we're here in the second movement where we're going to honor some music that we've been spending some time with uh, this week. How about you get us started? I want to bring in the most iconic blues line in history. Um, the reason being because the man who wrote it was born on this day, April 4th, 1913 in Asaquania, or would that be uh, Issaquina County, Mississippi? Oh, oh, I'm not sure. I've never. That's that sounds pretty backwater to me. Either way. <laughs> so um, later known as the father of the Chicago style blues, Muddy Waters mm. and his track "Hoochie Coochie Man," which invented, oh, which invented electricity, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. The gypsy woman told my mother before I was born. I got a boy charge coming. He's gonna be a son of a gun. He's gonna make pretty women's jump and shout. Then the world wanna know what this all about. But you know I'm here. So that riff, that bum bum and ba bum, that is Muddy Waters. He yeah. he came up with that. And that made it all the way to the office. Of course, I mean that that made it everywhere. I, I guess I didn't realize that that would have been 
invented by a person. You know, it, it seems like that is just it's so prevalent in blues. It seems like that's something that would have just developed. But for that to be attributed that's, to that's a, a person, that's, that's entirely incredible. possible. That's an, I, I don't know that for sure. But that riff I associate with Muddy Waters. And if you do that riff nine times out of 10, there's going to be somebody around you that's going to holler back. Nah, 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 nah. Of course. They're going to be ready. Of course. Of right. course. And, uh, you know, John Lee Hooker, you know, he uh, updated it and added other lyrics and such. But um, you always go on about how I appreciate lyrics. Th these lyrics, could, these are kind of like your horoscope. It can mean anything to anybody. Give, give me some of them. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm here. Everybody knows I'm here. Yeah, you know, I'm your hoochie coochie man. Everybody knows I'm here. You are well, cussing. The hoochie coochie man can be, I mean. <laughs> he can, that can be a lot of different things. It sounds like one thing in particular to me. But this is uh, <laughs> this is sort of the 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 black magic, the voodoo, the, the spells mm -hmm. of uh, the some blues players like to create you know they have on the end of their guitars you might even notice it on the end of one of my guitars i've got a mojo hand okay which is a little bag and on the inside it has charms and and you know oh. things that are significant to yep. me that are in there that's my that's my little bag of spells mm -hmm. my, that's my power and he says i got a black cat bone i got a mojo too got me the johnny Concharu. I'm going to mess with you. I'm going to make you girls lead me by the hand. Then what? Then the world will know the hoochie coochie man. Mm -mm. Contextualize Muddy Waters and your appreciation for him in a world where you, you know, who are we talking about not too long ago where we have the Chris Stapletons and, mm -hmm. we, and we have all of these other blues and, and roots artists. If Chris Stapleton didn't reference him as an influence, I would be surprised. Mm -hmm. Okay. I also mentioned the Rolling Stones because they've been recording for what, 40-ish years or something like that. They have been on stage, you know, saying that Muddy Waters is the, it, he's the headwaters yeah. of this style of music. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen. Happy, happy birthday. I, I, you know, every time I hear this music, I, th I think of home. I think sometimes we take uh, people, myself, I'll speak for myself, I, I take for granted uh, the history mm -hmm. that's that's really in this music and uh, the significance of it more broadly. I hope that as we figure out how uh, we as an industry can break down that phrase classical music and really incorporate more things like this. We're going to be more learned people. We're going to be more enriched musicians and music lovers, appreciators of music, because we understand more of what it took for the Chris Stapletons and all of these other people to be here. And at the root of all of it was black folks and black folks like Muddy Waters. Let's hear a little bit of the the outro of this to to I'm coining out the headwaters. Coochie, Maine. I mean, <laughs> you know, jazz itself was, you know, one of those uh, naughty words once upon a time. Right. You know, so all of this stuff is is rooted in all of that. It's just fun to think about it. Well, uh, I'm going a little closer on the Western classical tip this week. So uh, I want to uh, shout out uh, Keith Brown over at um, 
Interlocking Public Radio. He was tweeting me last week and talking about this uh, video game music that he had me thinking about. So I went back into my video game music bag and I remembered that once upon a time, Scott, uh, in the Final Fantasy series, the sixth edition of that game, there's actually an opera in the in the video game long story oh. short you have these uh characters that are traveling around and and trying to save the world they find themselves in an opera house where there's a plan to uh to kill one of the the main singers in the opera. So uh, one of the members of your party takes the place of the uh, main singer and you do the whole thing on screen. You know, you have to select the right lines and they make it fun in that way. Um, Eventually, you know, you find yourself up in the rafters trying to keep someone from uh, throwing a, a sandbag or something over to kill somebody. There's an enemy up there in the rafters. Everyone falls to the stage and you have one of those scenes where you're fighting in real life but the audience thinks it's you know part of the show you've you've spoken to that i remember one time as i was thinking about this you talked about one time you were watching a play and a woman's throat was cut and it looked real enough or you know i I went running up there i'm thinking about the movie uh interview with the vampire where they kill a woman right there on stage yeah i I really love thinking about those moments where uh in fiction where something real on stage is happening but the audience no one helps they're just watching because they think it's it's very dark in any way so the music that's performed in this opera um since you know when this video came video game came out probably 1993 or something 1996 um has been recorded by an orchestra and it's some really incredible music so i wanted to share a little bit of it here this week since i've been thinking about it to in its entirety just really beautiful music and the uh the lyrics themselves of course back in the midi days of video games they couldn't do actual human voices with words but uh they've since uh done it in in these recordings and it's recorded in english do you think it's Mm. a a big deal is it consequential for um opera to be in english do you think that makes it more accessible because i've heard both sides of of that conversation i don't know i think the the casual listener would be more inclined to go and listen to something where they understood the words. Yeah, that's what that's what I would think as well, but even with those English language operas, I find myself needing the subtitles too. When I went to go see Fire Shut Up in My Bones and uh, at the Met, I used the the subtitles that were on the back of the seat hmm. even though it was sung uh in in English, but you know, aside from uh as we what we were one of the things we were talking about earlier meeting people where they are, you know, this could be an, an incredible entry point into opera spaces for a lot of people who wouldn't be there otherwise. Hmm. Um even in the context of like a video game music concert, that would be cool, but I think even uh beyond that just having something that has a uh uh a aural of musical symphonic vocabulary that people can attach their ears to English language words and then just the nostalgia of playing a video game from one of the world's you know most famous video game franchises I think it's great stuff here's a little bit of uh, the end of it uh, Maria and Draco from Final Fantasy 6 
dramatic as as opera tends to be. So hopefully uh, one of these days you'll get to um, spin that one. Uh, it's uh, the the Distant Worlds album. I know that every now and again there's some Final Fantasy music that makes it through the uh, the the system up there at, at your job. I've even, I, I had even aired some, but I think you know there's even more stuff to dig into. So shout out to everyone who remembers Final Fantasy VI. Uh, shout out to Jonathan Gibbs. He's a a, a particular fan, and I hope you'll go check it out if you are familiar with it. I'll have a recording linked in the description. And with that, we're going to go ahead and uh, transition into the third movement, where the guests this week are Perry and Charlotte from the Thrill to Announce podcast. Scott, this is a podcast uh, where these two Two women from the opera world come and talk about everything else. You know, mm. <laughs> I think it's important to show the human side of opera uh, and opera performers, and they definitely do uh, a great job of tying all of those things to the real world, breaking down respectability, and just having fun as uh, podcast hosts out here in this very uh, diverse and growing world of Western classical music podcasts, so-called classical music podcasts. Uh, where we start, Perry speaks to um, a conversation that we had when I was on their podcast a while ago in conjunction with the Black Opera Alliance, talking about DEI, are things cooling off, and we just kind of uh, get into the conversation that way. Uh, I asked both uh, Charlotte and Perry to offer pieces of music for the intros and outros, things that they want folks to hear. So we're going to get into the conversation with Perry's pick. It's a piece of music by Kaya Sariajo, um, a composer who I, we've, I believe we've featured on uh, Triloquy before. Uh, and this track here uh, features voice and electronics. It's called Lone, a little bit of new vocal music here to get me and you into my conversation with Perry and Charlotte from Thrilled to announce. Um, I think something that really stuck out to me that you said in our conversation a couple weeks ago was, um, I mean, obviously there has been a little bit of a downturn in interest and um, kind of speaking out about racial justice in the opera world. And I would say probably in the classical world at large. And I kind of brought that to the table and you countered me and you said, yes, that's true. But we are now seeing the people who are actually doing this for real, who mm -hmm. are really interested in making change. <laughs> We're kind of like letting these people who are only doing it for optics, who are only doing it for aesthetics kind of fall by the wayside. And that really changed my perspective on it. Um, I can be a little cynical, um, but I appreciated <laughs> hearing that. Well, you aren't the only one who can be a little cynical. <laughs> what about you, Charlotte? How has the whole DEI and music conversation been engaging you lately? Yeah, I would agree. I've been really disappointed by a lot of things I've seen recently. But um, as BOA has been working so directly with a lot of companies, it was really nice to hear that you have found as a leadership council a lot of encouragement in certain people you've been talking to and certain companies you've been talking to. And 
watching over the course of somehow at this point years <laughs> that we've mm-hmm. been having this discussion, um, you know, 2020 through 2022 kind of feels like one long year to me sometimes. Oh, yeah. um, that's why I phrase it that way. But um, to see companies stepping up multiple seasons later, uh, especially as they're starting to make money again, they're starting to put things up in real life. This isn't like digital content. They have to make decisions. <laughs> they have to take financial risks mm-hmm. um, and seeing who's willing to take financial risks on these things that matter very much. Um, I think a lot about how the term ally, a lot of people have written, I actually, I'm not sure where I've like heard this originally, but a lot of people have written about the idea of an ally versus an accomplice Mm -hmm. versus like a race trader and like where those lines fall and like what you are willing to give up and like the power you're willing to give up and the finances you're willing to give up for something Um, and seeing like what companies are willing to make sacrifices for something that they believe in and not take an easy route, not be quiet, not do something just because it's nice for marketing. Um, Seeing those companies step up is really encouraging. And also companies who were you know, slowly making moves or making big moves toward that prior to the pandemic, watching them follow through to now. um, That's also really encouraging as well. So it's nice to kind of see where we can direct our attention and direct our support um, at minimum. And that's me trying to be positive because of course there's a lot of disappointment as well. It's funny that you use that phrase race trader. The first time I heard it uh, was on my partner's uh, uh, Twitter bio. I had never heard it before. <laughs> and mm-hmm. his says aspiring race trader. So I'm glad. <laughs> that's iconic. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad to see that that rhetoric is, is uh, going along. I, I want to, focus on, uh, you, you mentioned digital content. I actually want to focus on podcasting and that sort of thing in this conversation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, th- there is a little business talk that we have to, you know, traverse before totally. we get there, you know, uh, <laughs> to, to the point of DEI and, and really expanding the repertoire and, and that sort of thing. I've been trying to push people into an even more radical direction toward decolonizing classical music, just considering what is foundational to our experiences here in this part of the world as classical, despite the boxes that were built around some of these other genres like blues and jazz and gospel um, and, and and those conversations. I wonder, you know, from the from the opera perspective, is that too far-fetched? It seems like when we think of opera, we have to go into the European aesthetic of things, right? Or maybe not. Yeah, that's a really interesting... I, there's so many layers to that question. Um, I feel like I've seen so many people take so many different approaches and I find all of them really valuable and all of them teach me a lot. And I just, you know, like there's so many truths in that. I've seen so many people say like, I will not participate in that world anymore. Mm-hmm. I was educated in that system and I'm done. I don't want to appeal to these people. I don't want to be hired by these people. I don't want to participate in this system. And that's so legitimate. And then there's so many people who are like, I am going to stay in this world. And I'm going to make a place for myself and I'm going to make my music and you know my cultural integrity fit within this because that is my mission and that's also really valid and i love that as well i it's so complex to watch over the past few years how people have um, come to terms with that. And then also how some other companies are engaging with that. Like obviously, you know, with the Met doing fire shut up in my bones in the fall, it was like congrats the Met, but also mm-hmm. like it's 2021, 2022, yeah. like like it's just it's both things at the same time um so i mean where i fall with it i i try to do a lot of you know reading around 
how we educate around music. I find that to be a really interesting way to talk about decolonization is like decolonization of education and like oral history versus written history and who's writing this history and how epigenetics and, you know, body memory and generational memory plays a huge role in how we understand culture and music Mm -hmm. versus reading like our textbooks, which is obviously like great and fun. And there's a lot of valuable information in there. But I think for me, it's been a point of interest of decolonizing my relationship to classical music personally, to also take a look at the system in which we learn it and how that can be decolonized and how we can look at the cultural musical history of so many other types of people in this world outside of just like reading a little book. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's been my experience recently, yeah. I'd say. <laughs> Perry, I wonder if you'll pull on one of those threads, creating space versus making space. I was very, uh, I'll throw out this example. I was very excited to see that Chicago uh, put on stage a Carmen where both leads are women. And, oh, you know, that, cool, right? that, that that's such a fun spin on, you know, one of these so-called canonical operas at the same time there are stories about women maybe even queer women that have been put to opera that we could be platforming instead how, how do you balance that i think that i have no idea honestly um that <laughs> me neither, made, made me record. think of um, laura kaminsky <laughs> she does some cool writing um some cool queer stories but i had a lot of trouble with this question when you emailed it to us and i was like why do i have nothing to say about this (laughs) and i was thinking and what i've realized that charlotte and i have done with this opera podcast is um we don't talk about opera (laughs) like we don't talk about the music we have not done an episode where we like talk about a score at all. One of my mentors actually reached out to us and was like, so when are you going to talk about like the music? And I was like, I honestly have no idea. I, it didn't even occur to me. It's so much more about the industry and the culture. Um, and I've done so much thinking about how it feels to be like mired in this like complicated world. I've done almost no thinking in the past couple of years about what the music is actually doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wrote in my little notes, uh, ask me again in a year. Hopefully I'll do some <laughs> thinking about it. But I think it's a complicated question because a, a way that we try to like update these works is by, you know, changing the gender dynamics. And like, what if there is a Figaro where the Carabino was not yeah. a pants roll and was like a girl? Like, how would that change things? And does it change things? I'm not sure. Like, does it change what the roots of the story are? I guess it's an interesting interpretation. It makes me excited. I thought that Chicago thing was really cool, especially because it's incredible that she could do that tenor role. Exactly. Um, At like, pitch. I, right. I, mm-hmm. I want to see that. That's amazing. Um, yeah. But I don't really have any strong opinion about whether or not it's worthwhile or whether we should be really putting those things aside. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, so and, I'll, I'll text you in a year. Yeah, yeah, and and you know you you segue <laughs> us beautifully into the the role of podcasting in these conversation these days. You know, when I started Triloquy, there were so many things out there that were you know introduction to the classics or you know teaching this or that. But I wanted to really have something that was dialogue based and that really right. you know created proximity between this art and the the rest of the world. Uh, I wonder if either of you can talk about. Uh, the origins, the the baby steps of Thrill to Announce and, you know, its sure. mission. So we actually conceived of the podcast before the pandemic. Um, we recorded a couple episodes. We were both living in like the New York area-ish. I rented some mics from my grad school 
Um, and it was like a fine episode that we recorded probably <laughs> in early February of 2020. Mm-hmm. And then some shit happened. I don't know if you heard in March, 2020. Um, and so that kind of like fell by the wayside. I was and indoors then- this whole time. That's why I didn't <laughs> hear about it. <laughs> um, and so some shit happened. And then I really felt like that episode wasn't relevant anymore, but I was still really interested in the project. And also I came up with the name Thrilled to Announce in like maybe 2017. And so I wanted to keep doing it because I like the name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so I reached out to Charlotte again. I don't know when I like Facebook messaged you. I don't know why I didn't text you, but... Um, saying that we should do this, like for real, you know, we're feeling so lost and so like without purpose. Um, and so scared of, um, kind of looking ahead and seeing nothing. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so we set out to make this first episode, which was a combination of a bunch of random philosophy shit that had been rattling around in my head. And then Charlotte took on the bulk of this huge project of, um, cataloging opera company statements to, um, the black lives matter, protests mm-hmm. um so yeah and that kind of like set the ball rolling and we got an unexpectedly amazing response which was very cool and then we kind of just kept going from there yeah yeah charlotte uh perry mentioned that you know you started technically before the pandemic but you know things picked up a little later as everyone here knows everyone started a podcast when we were all <laughs> locked inside uh do you think the, the podcast ecosystem is getting a little crowded. What do you, what do you think about that? I would say that I really appreciate when everyone finds a creative outlet for themselves. I love that for them. I really do. I love it for them as well. I really love it for them. Um, I mean, especially during the pandemic, we've, we all like lost our little minds. So it was like so sweet to see everyone like doing, you know, projects and a lot of them stuck around. A lot of them are still going. It's fantastic. Um, I would say instead of focusing on anybody else, Perry and I were just really focused on like our mission mm. um, and also memeing. Really- <laughs> <laughs> and I would also say, so I answered yes and no when I was taking my notes on this um, uh-huh. because yes, there are like so many podcasts. It's like kind of unfathomable. You can't think about it too much. I'm sure you've encountered <laughs> this as well, Garrett. Um, I became so much more aware of it after starting the podcast. Yeah. And then we kind of start following these accounts and I'd be like, oh my God, another one? I had no idea. Because podcast accounts would like follow us. Yeah. So that's yeah. how we would become alerted to it right, as right. well. But I think the cool thing is like seeing how everyone is interpreting this um, kind of assignment of making a podcast about opera because everyone approaches it from a slightly different angle. Everyone has yeah. like slightly different backgrounds, slightly different interests, slightly different focus. Like I really don't think... I don't know. I don't think this is conceited, but I don't think anyone is doing what we are doing exactly. Yeah. And I don't think, you know, the next podcast, no one's doing exactly what they're doing. And so Mm -hmm. it's kind of cool to see all these little niches and to learn something new. Yeah. And yes, we're an opera podcast, but I would say we're almost more of like a young artist podcast. Okay. Um, Because we're not really talking about opera. Right. (laughs) No, like ever. And that's really important. I mean, you know, as much as I'm like, yeah, as much as it's like we really were just focusing on ourselves just to be able to get the work out, it is also because like we didn't have to look at other podcasts because yeah. we weren't doing what they were doing. Like we didn't have to take notes from anybody. Yeah, yeah. And again, that's like not even like a quality statement or anything like that. It's just like a lot of podcasts were like just interviews or a lot of podcasts were like talking about operas. Mm-hmm. And, like I literally just don't want to do that. So. <laughs> 
that. Like this yes. was not really like what the majority of what our work was. And it's just because like, we love to chit chat. We literally love to talk. We're just like talking about the little zeitgeist of whatever's mm-hmm. on our minds. We talk about sunscreen for 20 minutes. Like it all just, mm-hmm. it was our own little thing. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, you know, I think that there's a lot of interest in various podcasts, depending on what you're looking for. And in that sense, like the podcast world is insane and incredible. Like you can get whatever you're in the mood for. Yeah. You know? there's, there's always something to check out on that long layover or, or when you're <laughs> exactly. washing dishes. Yeah I, I, yeah. I love that there are so many things out there for folks to engage. Perry, Garrett, I, I re- do you st- oh, sorry. Do you uh, still I'll, listen to a lot of podcasts? Oh, every day. And I try to, I try to keep myself <laughs> caught up. Yeah. I, I, I'm not great at uh, typing words and listening to podcasts, but if I'm practicing, I'll, I'll, mm. I'll, I'll turn on one. Yeah. But they're not, none of them are music podcasts, unfortunately. Well, I'll, I'll say fortunately, none of them are music podcasts, <laughs> but <laughs> I'll slip one in every now and again. But what I was going to ask you, Perry, I remember during the BOA feature on Thrilled to Announce, you said something along the lines of, oh, if when I start this podcast, I'll never work again. You know, just the, what the industry reaction to being trill as we say over here, you know, just un- unapologetically honest what the industry reaction uh, to that can be. Have you faced any of that? H- have those fears manifested? <laughs> not not even a little bit. I would say I've gotten jobs from this podcast. I think I've, and then, then I have a couple jobs that I suspected I've gotten just because I'm on people's minds just a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so it's really only been a good thing. You know, I've heard a couple things from um, people of the older generation coming to me and saying they really don't like the stuff that I'm saying. Um, specifically, we did an episode about open access. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did have some like mentors in my life reach out to me and say that I was really wrong, um, which I'm also okay with. Like, I think people can think that I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, but no, I haven't. I mean, it's a, it's a complicated question because it's not like I had a whole ton of work before the <laughs> pandemic started. Um, and now I have way more work than I did because my work was like, you know, at a one. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's also a hard question to answer because I've totally refocused how I'm trying to get work and I'm being much more intentional about where I'm applying to things and um, being intentional about location. Uh before the pandemic, I kind of applied anywhere. I didn't care. Now I'm really staying within like the, I'm in like the New York, greater New York area. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that as a way of community building is also beneficial for me because you kind of can become, you know, your name can be more easily recognized. So I don't know. It's not a scientific study, but I absolutely have not lost work. Would I get into the Lindemann? Probably not. But what I've gotten in <laughs> before I started this podcast, probably not. <laughs> sure, sure. What about you, Charlotte? Has has thrilled to announce had an impact on on your gigs, on your wallet? Yeah. (laughs) At first, I was laughing a lot during that because I forgot that, like in early episodes, Perry and I would be very self deprecating and say, like, yeah, you know, like we just have nothing on our season now, and like I guess Mm -hmm. that's just you know that's how it happens. But it's like we literally had no risk going into this in a way. To be like totally frank with you, you know, (laughs) in that moment, like we were not about to lose like a major contract, and we almost like appreciated that, like. I actually really appreciated that because it was very freeing because we actually had a lot of people in our DM saying, you know, I can't say this. Like I wouldn't know where to start. Mm -hmm. It would just be like so thorny. I would have to really think about it. I would have to know what I was going to let go of by saying these things. But the fact that you are like, you have no idea, like you're making me feel so much more human to hear someone say these things that I've only whispered to people, 
you know, the things that we all whisper to each other at cast parties Mm -hmm. and no one was able to say out loud. And it was kind of this like sacrifice. I put that in quotes that we were very capable of making because a lot of people who were very dear to us had made it further in the industry and just like are maybe better singers than us. And that's totally fine. And then we could just Mm -hmm. get on our little microphones and say our little things. And that was like a huge contribution that we could offer. Um, So that felt really nice in a way, actually, um, to not have to balance that. And it was almost like its own privilege in this strange way. Um, But then I would say in addition to that, yeah, I didn't have anyone reach out to me and say anything that made me feel like that. And um, most people, I mean, I've worked with a lot of people that I adore in this industry, but there's also people who I've worked with who I'm just like, I really wouldn't care what their opinion is because I find what they do kind of exploitative to begin with. So I would prefer that they would like dare challenge anything I was saying. Like mm-hmm. I'm like mm-hmm. in the mood anymore. You know what I mean? Like yeah. <laughs> pre-pandemic, yeah. I might've been like nervous and I'm like, now I would just love to have that conversation with some of those people. And see, um, and now, now you have me really curious because, <laughs> you know, the trajectories of singers and instrumentalists can be so separate, you know, and I feel like <laughs> sometimes the gap gets wider and wider. So, yeah. you know, I, I wonder if, if either of you can speak to, you know, these little things, an example of these little things whispered at cast parties. Maybe there are things that we instrumentalists don't know about the drama on, on top of the stage, you know, <laughs> we're yeah. under the stage. And y'all are on top of the stage. <laughs> well, I am also really curious, honestly, about the training process. I went to Brevard, which I know has oh, like yeah. an orchestral situation that's like a big Definitely. deal. Yeah. And so the opera kids there, you know, we're having a great time. We're working hard, but it's one of many paid things that we'll do in our young training period. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas for many people who were there, they were like, yeah, I'm going to do this and maybe one other and then get a gig, like theoretically. And that's just not what our process looks like at all we have to do the same thing Mm -hmm. like 10 summers in a row and i I was always curious like could you speak to i'm just curious like is that true (laughs) because i feel like i heard that so much at brevard but i don't really want to speak too much to the differences without also understanding like maybe more accurately like what those are would you say that's sort of the case for like the training period so you mean as far as like uh getting into the profession yeah like how many like like how many programs would you go to that you pay for how many programs would you go to that they pay you theoretically in this like perfect world thing like that doesn't really exist what would you do i'll answer that question like this uh three four five years ago before i got involved with the black opera alliance i would have had no idea what you're talking about Mm. Uh, the the young artist programs all of those things just don't really exist for us i think the closest thing are summer festivals but Mm -hmm. folks folks go to summer festivals well into their professional careers on the instrumental side it's just okay i go to school and i practice as hard as I can. And hopefully Mm. while I'm in school, I win a job. So there's not a gap. But yeah, these these young artist programs you're talking about and all that just does not exist on on our side of the spectrum at all whatsoever. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, I was really struck by that because um, we've been doing some research about application fees. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to a couple of friends who have been doing a bunch of conversations. They've been talking to um, heads of companies and also heads of people who run these um, application websites. Specifically, I don't, I think it's okay to talk about this. I don't know, specifically accepted, which Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've heard of Garrett and maybe used. Um, Those fees are way higher than the fees on other websites. And my Mm. friends were talking to this guy and they were like, so why are your fees so high? And he was like, oh, well, you know, you're only going to be applying to a couple, a handful of places. So really how expensive is it going to be? And my friends were like, singers apply to like 
15, 30, 40 places a year. Like and it it's feels an astronomical so pernicious feat. just to take yeah. advantage of, of uh, a lack of opportunity or totally. whatever singers exactly. need and taking advantage of that. That's what it sounds like to me. Totally. Yeah. And this guy also um, was an instrumentalist. And so he just didn't have the scale of mm. how much money that singers were really spending on these applications because apparently, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is just what he said. Um, you guys just aren't applying to 15, 30, 40 things a year. You know, you're applying to a couple of things to get a summer gig. What what, the- what instrument does he play? Because that matters. <laughs> because I don't remember. Because this is all like brass, brass players can never talk to me about cost because, you know, mm. we, we have to buy instruments that cost tens of thousands of right. dollars. You know? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, <laughs> that's a whole other thing. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, yeah, so maybe just- that's how it balances out, I suppose. Yeah, I was about to say. Do you even think about that? Yeah, there's like this chasm of we have so much in common, but mm-hmm. also nothing in common at all. We've been right. in talks with a bunch of instrumentalists um, and even discussing our unions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, AFM mm-hmm. and AGMA are both have their issues, but they are so different. It's yep. hard to even like bring it to the table and have a unified conversation. So it's like, oh, well, the AFM is great at that, but they're terrible in these other ways. Yeah, um, yeah. Does do, do right to work laws and all of that stuff play a role in uh, in AGMA membership? I know it does on the AFM side. I have no idea. That's interesting. Yeah, we're so know. detached, and it's actually funny that we're so detached. It's kind of like indicative of the AGMA relationship to young artists. They actually have very little understanding of what we go through, and we should be so much more heavily protected by people who have the power to protect us in this. And instead we're just kind of like floating along being exploited. Um, and in turn, we know very little about AGMA to be frank because yeah. we're not a part of it. And yeah. I don't think they really mind that. Um, yeah, so there's I wish kind of I no reason for that. us to join it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I mean, this there really isn't like, but... I'll go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead, Perry. Oh no. I mean, we, there's just, if you're a freelancer, um, there's really no, you, you, shouldn't join AGMA, which is really unfortunate. And I wish it wasn't like that, but it's just like you pay dues to get nothing. The only reason you join AGMA when you're a young artist is if you go to a really high level summer yap and you're required to join AGMA in order you to like sing in to. the upper chorus. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, which on our side, if I'm if I moved to New York City, joining the local AFM would not only be beneficial, but a requirement if I want to play yeah. any bar or anything. I was about to know. say, yeah. You like yeah. have to, yeah. Wow. Yeah, but so but, but to get us to get us back specifically to uh, podcasting and that uh, sort of thing, the value of podcasting as an art form is really growing. We see more and more uh, institutions, uh, and I'm, I'm 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 not talking about music. I'm talking about you know the YouTubes, the Amazons, the Patreons, all mm-hmm. of these folks really investing in podcasting as a thing. I wonder if. Uh, as the hosts of a podcast, have you thought about how to ride that wave? Do you see podcasting as something sustainable uh, for for you, at least as a part-time thing at the very least, if not something more? I would say, yes, that there's always going to be a place for this creatively, both within this realm, but also like within the opera world, but also broader than that. I used to tell people a lot when we started Thrilled to Announce that I would just like the vision I had was someone who knew nothing about opera, just mm-hmm. cutting vegetables to make dinner and being like, Oh my God, do you hear this like funny podcast? I found it's like these girls, but they're like opera singers, but they don't really talk about opera. They're just like talking about their little worlds, but also about these like hot topic issues at the mm-hmm. world at large, but like mm-hmm. through their lens of opera. And I just, I think there's a space for us as opera singers in this niche little 
world to also have a broad reaching podcast that's interesting to people who are not just opera singers. Like that is my goal. That is one of my goals with this is that I think we have something to say that stretches far beyond opera. We're just part of a larger conversation, like a larger cultural conversation. Um, So I do believe that that audience is there and has been forming in the past two years. Um, It is interesting, you know, what you're saying about these larger companies sort of investing in or becoming like entangled with podcasting. I find it very interesting. I don't know that I like have a point to this, but I just will say this. My partner loves Reply All, which I guess like most people love. That's Mm -hmm. fine. Like it's kind of cute. I listen to episodes. I don't know enough about it to have like a firm opinion. So like, don't quote me on that. But he was listening the other day and he was kind of bummed out. Some of the episodes have been like not as great recently. And then he was like, this is the last one. If this one is not great, I'm not listening to this podcast anymore. And the first ad is for literally the U.S. military. Wow. That was the first <laughs> ad. <laughs> what? <laughs> he was like, okay, that's it. That's unsubscribe. We're done here. We're yeah. done here. And it really like kind of struck me of like, people are starting to understand the reach that podcasts have as like a very influential media sort Mm -hmm. of a la TikTokers being like prepped for what's happening in Ukraine at the white house last week. It's (laughs) like very bad. So it's interesting podcasts, I think are just going to be like such a large part of how we consume media in the next years, in the next few decades as they already are. So I don't Mm -hmm. know. That's, that's Mm -hmm. some of my thoughts floating around in my brain. And, and I guess, Perry, to point that conversation to the industry, is this work consequential? So, you know, I'm thinking, I, I hate to even say, I, I won't say the name, I'll say um, Schmo Schmogan, okay? <laughs> 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 Things that happen on that podcast are consequential to the world, you know, right. much less specific totally. industries. So in a, in a similar way, if we're going to use that as an example, do you see shows like thrilled to announce as consequential to the industry will someone who listens to thrilled to announce say something to somebody who says something to somebody and now there's this opera about podcasting or whatever you know <laughs> well that'd be very cool um we need the podcasting I mean, I, opera we, we do need yes it. yeah 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 <laughs> um i mean i think it's it, consequential really just based on the responses we've gotten um, Mm -hmm. over the past couple of years, the people who have reached out to us, um, both expected and totally unexpected, who have been moved by what we're saying and thankful that we're saying it. That's been very cool. And I also think that, you know, the podcast, it started with the podcast, but we, it's like a movement. It's almost like the podcast is the vessel in a -hmm. similar way to how our memes are kind of like the vessel, the memes kind of like pull people in and then like get you like into the message, set the tone. Yeah, Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. And that's kind of what we strive to do with the podcasting as well. Like it's the beginning of something like, I think that maybe it can spark things within people. And I know that it's brought people together. You know, they'll go to, I you know a couple kids uh, went to Aspen, I think last summer, and mm-hmm. they were all like listening to it together and talking about it, um, which is very cool. So I think if it's consequential, it's consequential in that it uh, begins something. I don't know if it can ever finish something, but I think that the podcast, the podcasting realm can start things. 
Yeah. Something that I always have to ask co-hosts is, how do you maintain the friendly, upbeat co-host relationship? <laughs> or, or is all of this fake and you hate each other? A it's bit? all facade. <laughs> <laughs> because that does exist, you know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Like the yeah. acting gig of a lifetime. Right? Yeah. We're Oscar. not good enough actors for that. <laughs> <laughs> but how do, you um, main, how do you maintain that? Just make sure that, I mean, for me and, and Scott, my co-host, you know, one of my mm-hmm. taxic, tactics is to make sure that our interactions aren't only the podcast, that we mm-hmm. actually do go out or we do talk about other things or, or whatever, you know. Yeah, I'd say that's definitely something we do um, and make a point of. Um, and also whenever we set up a time to talk, we like just to be frank, like we don't end up talking about the podcast in <laughs> yeah. a separate meeting to talk about it. Sure. Like we That's never healthy. do anything we need to do in the first meeting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I once would- we are going to, we don't really record in person at all because, you know, this kind of started as a pandemic thing and it's kind of just how we're used to doing it now. Um, yeah. And we, we met up one time for like <laughs> podcast related reasons to record in my mom's apartment. And we both brought our little mics and we turned our mics on. And then we literally just talked shit for two hours. <laughs> Never Not recorded press anything. <laughs> wow. And then we're like, okay, bye. <laughs> but I think I was thinking about this question. I think the easiest thing is that Charlotte and I have very, very similar visions, both like aesthetically and content wise for what we want the podcast to be. And we had no idea that it was going to be that way when it started. I think we just got lucky. Um, You know, the way that like our Instagram feed looks, the way that like we design things, the way that we kind of create these episodes has always been very organic. And I've always liked like every single one of Charlotte's ideas. And whenever I bring an idea Charlotte agrees with me and then makes it better. So it's kind of just like a really nice synchronicity that we fell into. Um, So it's nice to not really know how to answer this question because it's just been, you know, we just have been plucking along. Well, you did say uh, that the two of you have similar uh, visions. What what is that vision? What's what, what, what do you hope to see or experience or have in a decade? I kind of want to like read our mission statement a little bit. Yeah, it's you like should. so cute. It, is that yeah. annoying? Can we do <laughs> no, it? No, no. <laughs> okay. Mary's <laughs> like, no, no, it's not. <laughs> it worked so hard. <laughs> um, okay. <clears throat> oh my God, it's two. Per- it's like three sentences though, honestly. Okay, okay. I'm going to do it. Um, okay. Thrilled to Announce is a leftist opera dream space. We are a podcast, a meme factory, a conversation, a quick look between two friends, and most importantly, a community of like-minded opera-adjacent people. TTA's mission is to foster solidarity within the singer community by opening dialogues about labor, equity, our bodies, our souls, and our collective futures. We are intentional dreamers who tap into the wisdom and work of those who came before us. The opera world is a microcosm of society at large, a vessel through which to talk about bigger ideas floating in the group psyche. The opera singer is not a pristine porcelain doll who exists in an isolated cabinet of consciousness. The opera singer is a political, radical, transformative, flawed, and powerful being. Thrilled to announce strives to unite the opera world and the real world in our psyches, our bodies, and our actions. Wow, go off. 
I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is a a very uh, beautiful vision and and one that (laughs) I think we (laughs) one that I think we need to think about more seriously. You know, when you when you read there and said that the opera world is a microcosm of the world, I think one of the things that we're uh, working toward is making sure that that is really the truth. Because if Mm. you know our spaces don't have everyone or even most people in them, you know, it's not actually a microcosm. It's it's something else. But I, I can't wait to yeah. uh, dig uh, more in and to send some of our audience over there. How can folks learn more about Thrilled to Announce? Where can they listen and where can they read that incredible mission statement? <laughs> so we have um, a website, um, yeah. thrilledtoannounce.com. And we're available, I'm pretty sure, anywhere you listen to a podcast, you can find us. Yeah. Um, we are called Thrilled to Announce. <laughs> uh, we have an Instagram which is at thrill to announce with like three E's or something. Yeah. It's like um, the meme central. So yeah. definitely head over there. Some um, really incredible content over there too. If I'm going to say so. <laughs> yeah, <thank> you. <laughs> you know, it's um, a really interesting point you're making about the mission that I'm thinking about, like what we meant by that when we said mm-hmm. a micro, it's almost I like, think what it's like I, a microcosm of like the issues like magnified. It's almost like a sure. magnification of the mm. things that are, happening in society you know what i mean like the exploitation of labor like the lack of representation of people who should be represented um those issues become so like radically magnified within this niche world of opera and it's almost like maybe that's a more accurate way to say what we were saying i don't Mm -hmm. know perry what do you think no i agree and that's kind of what we meant like it's not really a good thing that it's like a microcosm of society at large like it's every problem reflected and magnified and like you know expanded tenfold when it comes to racial equity when it comes to gender parity um when it comes to how easy it is to exploit our labor, you know, just because we, we like love what we're doing or whatever, um, we're very easily taken advantage of. And that's kind of what we were struck by and what made it so easy and fun to connect a lot of the philosophy, um, that we talk about in the podcast with the opera world. Like it's really like, it just kind of flows right in. Like you'll be reading it and be like, yep, that's describing my experience at like XYZ summer festival. Um, well, I certainly I one, didn't mean to. Uh, no, edit, no, 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 no. It just made me statement. think. No, 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 no. It was great. I was like, wait, why does it look like that's what we wrote? I was like, wait, holy shit. What did we write? <laughs> I wanted to think about that. That's a really good point. It can kind of look like it's like opera's doing great. And we love that. <laughs> like, <not what> we <laughs> See, my attitude is usually opera's doing great. And I hate that. Right. Sure. Like, that's valid. <laughs> I did. I did have uh, one more question, maybe kind of a, a curveball question. But uh, as we kind of started with the whole DEI and music thing is becoming more and more familiar with people. I feel like the more we dig into that concept, the more we have to begin to think about other conversations. For me specifically, I don't think you can talk about systemic racism and uh, systemic patriarchy for too long until you have to start talking about anti-capitalism and the way that those Mm -hmm. things uh, relate to music. So I guess to that, I I wonder if there are uh, conversations that are coming that you don't see in in the front right now, but are on their way. I think the tricky thing about anti-capitalism is it's like almost become um, a buzzword in a lot. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) Where it's like not really used in a sincere way. And I totally agree with you. And I think that on some level, it sort of sounds like people are talking about it, but they're not, Mm -hmm, (laughs) they're mm -hmm. not talking about like a genuine 
anti-capitalist approach to music to whatever they're speaking of so i mm-hmm. totally agree with you um we did an episode about like I was what would say, it look yeah. like if um we worked some like anarchy into the opera world like yeah. how would that feel and that was a really fun episode but it's hard it's very hard to imagine we have real. to get rid of all of the conductors first yeah right oh my god <laughs> <laughs> for the best. hierarchical power structures yeah yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah that episode actually i think is a one of the ones i recommend to people the most that conversation was just like so delicious it was a lot mm-hmm. about like I was talking a lot about mutual aid and like permaculture and a lot of just topics around like horizontal power structures and like what that could possibly mean in mm-hmm. opera. Um, and also it brought up conversations that are already being had all the time, including in BOA. Like, what does it look like for your community surrounding your opera house to look like who's singing in the opera house? Like, mm-hmm. wh- you know, what does a community based mutual aid based opera company look like? Um and yeah, so I mean, that conversation's hard to imagine, like an endpoint. Like we said, like our podcast is so often a place for things to stir. It is this womb space. And though we are not equipped with like the exact answer to that, it's a really important conversation. And there's lots of people who do have the answers to these things. And I love having these conversations because I think there's especially space for community-based opera and community-based music groups. Like that's that is doable. Like we can have the imagination for that. And I think it's something that can happen in the next few years, the next decade. I could see a a lot more community-based like sort of troops popping up like that would be very fun mm-hmm. you know a little bit of uh one of taishan sori's autoskidiasms taishan has uh been on triloquy um autoskidiasms is a piece of music that i've engaged in real life you know back pre-covid uh i, I think i gave some pre-concert talks for the uh, saint paul chamber orchestra and that's a bit of the music that uh charlotte wanted everyone to hear so some really um eclectic picks on either side of that conversation uh, with Charlotte and Perry that I was so uh, glad to have. I'm I'm always excited, Scott, about reaching out to other podcasters in the field and seeing their approach to things. Um, as as I was saying before we got into the interview, Perry and Charlotte really pride themselves in being opera professionals that don't really talk about opera all right. that much on their podcast. And you know, as we're getting closer to the end of uh, season three, you know, three years of Triloquy. I can't help but to think about um, how that conversation of staying away from classical, as it were, so-called classical, being sort of the one of the centerpieces of, of Triloquy as well. There was a time when I know both of us tried as best as we can to keep one hand on, you know, the orchestra or the chamber music or the opera or whatever. And while it comes in and out, I've enjoyed, you know, growing comfortable enough to be able to really actually broaden that definition of classical music and to dig into the jazz, dig into the blues and and all of those sorts of things. Yeah. How the roots. How do how do you feel about how you have developed over these past uh three years, and this isn't the season finale or anything, but I'm just thinking about it, you know, how your approach to music and specifically curation has evolved through working on Triloquy. I'm pretty much a different person, even though I don't have a hand in any music programming at this point. Sure. Um, well, here on Triloquy, you certainly do. Right. But when, you know, I'm, I'm talking about over at my job. Right. Um, yeah, I'm a much different person, not only 
from what I have learned and what I'm starting to do myself, you know, from my own work. Yeah. But the way that I talk about this music mm-hmm. to a national audience has changed. Yeah. Yeah. I feel, yeah. I, feel, I feel like at the core of it is, again, that proximity to the outside world, to the rest of the world. The, an analogy that I've used a lot is, you know, if, if science and math and arithmetic and all of these other subjects where, you know, little kids in a kindergarten class at recess, they all go outside and play and skin their knees. And the kid called classical music has to stay indoors and practice playing chess or whatever. And we're getting to the point to where that kid has to go outside as well. And there are people that want him to stay indoors, nice and safe and protected where he's always been. But as he goes outside, he has to engage different things, different conversations, which lead way to different music that mm-hmm. that proverbial child uh, represents. So I think it's important to uh, reach on the outside, both musically and otherwise. So again, shout out to Perry and Charlotte uh, from Thrilled to Announce and appreciate them coming on to Triloquy. All right, Scott, uh, we're going to get into the fourth movement with a uh, uh, composition, uh, an honorable mention. I thought about bringing this in for the second movement, but I'll, I'll just uh, play a little bit of it here to get us into the fourth movement. It's a, a track by a rapper named Marlon Kraft, and it's inspired by a composer who we were talking about not too long ago. Let's take a listen here. It's the soundtrack to a dark night, bitch, I'm Hans Zimmer. America Kaka, everyone will be a winner. It's that feeling like when the train's stuck between stops and you pick the wrong car. Cause you think you see a eye trying to rob me from my merm when I had North Face money. Don't end up on the wrong side of the hungry. Hip hop is aware of classical enough to, <laughs> to to do something like that, but it's like the inverse isn't true, right? What's North Face money? <laughs> North Face money, like the brand North Face? We need to take you shopping. <laughs> I didn't think that North Face was all that expensive, but okay. You'd be surprised how things, you know, remember uh, the, the champion hoodies that mm-hmm. you could buy at Kmart back in the day? That costs money now, you mm-hmm. know, so everything flips around. Anyway, shout out to Marlon Kraft. I, I, I like that uh, wordplay uh, as it connected to the so-called classical arts. And we're here in the fourth movement where we're going to uh, bring up just a couple things that are happening out in the world that uh, I feel like we need to respond to and speak to. First of all, Scott, you brought something to my attention earlier today something that I had not yet seen, uh, a letter concerning racial discrimination at Chamber Music America. What what do you got? I think that this actually has yet to pop. There's no news story on it yet, but um, I'm reading from Griffin Candy, at Griffin Candy on Twitter, Mm -hmm. shared a letter of the former director of grant programs at Chamber Music America, and he is uh, blowing a whistle due to this organization committing some racial discrimination and then covering it up. Uh, At one point, it was uh, mentioned here, the uh, CEO offered him $100,000 in exchange for silence and also offered to dedicate a CMA grant in his name as enticement. He writes, when I refused, the CEO and his lawyer threatened and intimidated me by placing me on forced leave. In in an abusive tone, his lawyer indicated my job would be held hostage until, quote, you and I sort this out. Goodness gracious. This is just one story. And if this is just the letter, I'm sure we'll have articles or whatever to talk about next week. But this is just one story that 
the industry has been seeing like this uh, as uh, you know, I can't announce it. It'll it'll be happening in the past by the time y'all hear this. But uh, tomorrow on Tuesday, April 5th, I'm leading a conversation with uh, Black Opera Alliance and Asian Opera Alliance regarding people who wrote a letter in joint resignation from Long Beach Opera. So we're seeing more and more of this as the DEI conversations are coming to a head and folks are actually uh you know, bringing folks to task and asking mm-hmm. them to be accountable and things not happening X, Y, and Z. Is it consequential, Scott, at the end of the day? A lot of people saw my story of me getting fired. A lot of people are seeing the stories of people quitting and resigning over these different things. At the end of the day, everyone needs what they need when it when it comes to the financials, you know, which precludes a lot of people from acting in in certain ways. I mean, is it, it doesn't does it matter? Do letters like this matter from your perspective? I'm I am starting to see all of the drips becoming a trickle and mm-hmm. the trickle becoming a real leak. And I really think a dam is about to give way. And what is it? I, and I'm really asking, what, what, is, what will that look like when the dam hopefully, breaks? Hopefully what? some accountability. We're, we're seeing more, I guess this is kind of peripheral, but you know we're seeing more organizations unionize. Uh, mm-hmm. a, a Starbucks down uh, in Knoxville- Amazon you know, you too. Unionized the first one in the South. Yeah, I saw an Amazon workhouse um, unionizing. Maybe that's the, the way forward. Uh, you know, you're a member of, of a union. Is that something that you would suggest to some of these people writing these letters? I think it's a great idea. Yeah. yeah. But um, some of the things that he brings up in this, uh, and keep in mind that the person's name has not been shown. We don't yeah, know if this is, is Jermaine. Is yeah. Right. So <laughs> he said, I had been advocating that artists' livelihoods have been gutted by the pandemic, and they should not be forced to pay a membership fee to apply for a grant from an organization that has been financially stable through the crisis. Uh, he also goes on to say that some of the recipients never actually got the money, mm-hmm. dozens mm-hmm. worth, you know? Wow. So where is that money going and why didn't they get it to him? all these questions coming together to have him blow the whistle? And um, I bet there'll be a news story coming out. Well, thoughts and prayers to everyone over there at Chamber Music America. I'm, I'm sure is is a, sorry, let me look. Is there a, a person's name? Uh, CEO Kevin Kwan. At, at the bottom of this letter. That's what I'm saying. The person, the, the whistleblower's name has not been oh, revealed. Has it been released? Okay. Well, I guess we'll uh, keep an eye on that. But in the meantime, you know, as I always say, speak your truth, though, and, and whatever way uh, that you can understand that there are infrastructures there to help you. You know, one of the big things, Scott, we talk about with the Black Opera Alliance is that we understand not everyone can put their jobs on the line or risk a contract being canceled. That's why the work of the activists, the, the work of individuals like me who can't be canceled by any of these institutions, we're here to help. So just keep that in mind. What Whatever corner of the industry that you you're in, there is an activist infrastructure uh, to to assist and and help there. But we'll we'll come back more uh, with, with more next week as that develops. Um, one thing uh, before we get out of here that I just needed to call out some folks I needed to throw a trill at. I'm reading here from Rolling Stone, Scott. The headline is three Republicans just couldn't help voting against making lynching a hate crime. All right, let me go down here and just get to business. So the three individuals who decided to vote against the anti-lynching act that finally passed after all of these decades were Andrew Clyde from Georgia, Thomas Massey from Kentucky, and Chip Roy from Texas. 
I am pulling gratitude out of this, Scott, because now we don't have to pretend that these three people are willing to do anything worth a damn in in the name of racial equity, social justice. If you can't sign on to that sort of legislation, of course, things like legalizing cannabis, decriminalizing cannabis, and all of these other things, of course, they aren't going to vote for that sort of thing. So I hope uh, if you live in Georgia, Kentucky, or Texas, and uh, you know these folks or, or, or know people who know these folks, who voted for these folks, Keep that in mind next time that you have them at your dinner table or have them in in conversation. You're aiding and abetting someone uh, who would not use their power to stand against lynching of all things as a hate crime. What 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 more is there to say about that, Scott? I mean, um, your <laughs> your name's <laughs> you know? out there. Yeah, so, so your name's so now, out there so now. now. You're on on the record, and uh, and and that needs to be noted. There are arts institutions in these communities that can stand against this type of inequity. Are you going to pretend to be neutral, or are you going to speak out against these people if they're in your constituencies and in your networks? Again, Georgia, Kentucky, and Texas for these people who refuse to sign on to this legislation. I we all know we talked about the story of Emmett Till not too long ago on on Triloquy several weeks back, but to hear. Joe Biden recalled the story and to hear it in his voice, and maybe it was the fact that it was coming from an old white man, it reopened the wound for me. So to see these people that won't make or, or wouldn't help make history because it did pass. Lynching is finally in the 21st century a hate crime, but they 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 wouldn't vote to to make that happen. So we we have that on record and we can all move forward accordingly. Um that's all I have uh, for this week. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm asking for uh, prayers and warm thoughts from my family. We're going through it right now. You know, uh, my, my mother has really been going through some things carjacked right. in the middle of the day. I mean, it's, it's the, the situation out here is getting so desperate that folks are doing horrible things like that. And this isn't me trying to uh, pass any blame on to the two motherfuckers who would dare do that to my mom. She's fine, thankfully. But, you know, I'm thinking about the bigger picture and the bigger picture I see is desperation. Desperation, all of these oppressive financial systems are pushing people down, forcing them into situations where they have to rob harmless women in the middle of the day going to the grocery store. Folks out here who can't speak their truth publicly because they're afraid of getting a, a job loss or or a contract canceled or or whatever. We we have to remove these systems one way at a time in whatever way we can. We live here in this music world, in this music infrastructure, and that's where and how we're trying to do it. I appreciate everyone listening. We'll see you next week. 